You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and disinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Isha. Today, we have Dr. Michael Olson to talk to us about the history of diseases, microbes, and virus. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Oldstone. My pleasure. So I was reading your book and I was like, oh, this is so interesting and timely that we like need to have you on. So what motivated you to write this book? Well, I wanted to pass on information to the next generation, to the fellows that I had trained in virology and immunology and to bring in more people into the field in terms of what occurs with different disease outbreaks. I was a history and English major in college, taking just sufficient classes to get into medical school. And so I've always been interested in history. And I found that uh, most people who go into science have not a great history uh, background and uh, really don't. know a great deal about it. And I thought this might make a contribution. That was the reason. The other reason was that I got into this field or thought about it when I was a young boy, around 10 or 11, I read a book by Paul de Criff called Microbe Hunters, which I found to be so exciting. And that led to me wanting to go into uh, medicine and infectious diseases. And In addition, when I traveled and spoke to many of my contemporaries throughout the United States and elsewhere, I found that a great number of them also read that book, and that decided their career choice. So I thought I would like to uh, try to continue that contribution. That's really interesting. And for me, the best part of the book was in the early chapter where you mentioned what a virus is and how it's different than a bacteria and why it kind of creates an epidemic. Would you be able to give a quick introduction on what a virus is so that people can understand? Sure, I'd be glad to. Let me first say that viruses, uh, plagues, and history that you read is now coming out with a new edition in about a month or two, which will include information on COVID-19 and on um, autism, Zika, and several other viruses. But let me talk to you about uh, what a virus is. A virus is an obligatory parasite. That is, it cannot live outside or replicate outside of a living cell. So the virus has to go into a cell uh, in order to replicate. And viruses are made up of only nucleic acid that is either DNA or RNA. So they're classified as DNA or RNA viruses. Um, DNA viruses are very large viruses. They have between 200 and 300 genes, of which they need only a few, let's say 10 to 15 to replicate, but they use the others as we call them suitcase viruses, which give the virus great advantage in its lifestyle and its replication. For example, smallpox virus is a DNA virus. 
it infects cells and kills cells. But it has an accessory gene that causes cells to grow, more healthy cells to grow when it's infecting a person. And so it has more of a of a host to continue to infect. So that's quite clever of the smallpox virus. And of course, pharmaceutical industries have understood that and they've tried to isolate the different genes of these viruses to make commercial products. For example, growing more skin on people that have burns, etc. So those are DNA viruses. Uh, DNA viruses, when they replicate, have a mechanism of correction so that when they make mistakes, the correction throws out the viruses that have made a bad uh, error. And so DNA viruses are rather stable. That accounts for their very, very large size because as they make more progeny, those that have mistakes are just eliminated. Now, in contrast, RNA viruses are small viruses. They have a rapidly mutate, so they mutate about 10,000 times more than a DNA virus does. And so an RNA virus is really a swarm of viruses. So you talk about COVID-19 or measles or HIV or influenza, which are all RNA viruses, you're talking about a swarm of viruses, a species of viruses, which is one major sequence that's analyzed. These viruses, because they mutate so well, they don't have a correction facility, or if the correction facility some of them have is quite minor, therefore they make lots and lots of progeny. They then evolve, mutate, and compete for space to, to uh, make more progeny virus. So if you look upon uh, RNA viruses as sort of like people who go to a health club and uh, are looking to lift the weights or do other kinds of things, and you have a number of people who become stronger, a number of people who are not as strong, and, uh, and the strongest ones, um, I suppose, uh, get the most out of the health care, well, you look at viruses, as they replicate and change their composition, those that are able to infect a host are the ones that then survive. So RNA viruses are always changing. So that's how viruses replicate. Now, viruses are an organism that can infect every living being, all, all the way from fungi to bacteria to plants to animals, to humans. And viruses don't have uh, frontiers. That is, they pass across borders. Viruses don't discriminate in terms of class, of race, or religion. They infect whoever is present. And when a virus mutates, it mutates either to become more virulent, meaning it's able to infect more people uh, and spread quickly or more rapidly or to more people so it has more hosts to infect. Or some viruses that are very clever mutate to form a persistent infection. And then you could look upon those as viruses that are on welfare. They have a place to stay in a host for the entire lifetime of a host without having to come out and find a new host. So 
that's what viruses do. They predominantly cause disease. Uh, they do have some benefits, but very few. When you talk about smallpox, and you said that smallpox was unique because only humans got it and you could only transmit it from humans. And so what would be interesting is to talk about how they went from, uh, I forgot the term you used, but when they, in, when they put like a live smallpox on their skin versus... <sighs> I can help you with that. So first, let me mention a little more about viruses and go into smallpox. So that viruses uh, evolved, uh, most people believe, from uh, domestication of animals or, or, or from people. Some viruses then had the unique ability only to infect humans. So when a virus can only infect humans like smallpox, then it's able to make a vaccine to control smallpox. That's the same for measles, uh, et cetera. When a virus infects an intermediate host, let's say a mosquito, and that mosquito can infect the monkeys, like in yellow fever, then you have difficulty making a vaccine that can to totally eliminate a disease because uh, there's an intermediate host. The man just gets the disease as an interloper. So with COVID-19, you have an animal host or so that's now gotten to people and infected them, and then a person infects another person is how the virus spreads. Now, smallpox is the only human virus which has been eliminated from the world. And you should realize that smallpox in the 20th century that we just passed killed more people than all the wars of the 20th century. That is World War One and World War Two, etc. Killed over 300 million people just in the 20th century. Now, when smallpox first arrived, the Koreans or the Chinese, probably the Koreans in the first century, realized that if you took a smallpox lesion that a person had on their skin, um, active smallpox, and you took that lesion and grounded it into powder and then introduce that power either into the nose or make a lesion with a knife on your skin and put the powder in the skin, you could then pass smallpox to a person. And the smallpox you passed uh, was a very mild, so the person got a mild disease and then was protected from future smallpox. So that smallpox, without any type of uh, therapeutic intervention kills about a third of the people it infects, a little more, about 36%. If you did the scratching, as I talked about, which is called variolation, then you killed about three or five out of 100 people. So that was a great advancement. And then after that occurred, when uh, variolation was introduced uh, from uh, in the Asian countries into the Western world and was used throughout the, uh, the Western world and in South America, etc. Uh, the next point was to make an attenuated virus. That, that is, it was found by Edward Jenner that smallpox was raged to all countries, 
that uh, he was a physician in uh, Berkeley, a small rural town, and he noted that milkmaids, who obviously milk cows, got lesions on their hands called from a virus called cowpox. These milkmaids never got smallpox. That is, in poems were written about them, how fair their complexion was because smallpox pits your, your face, etc. So that Edward Jenner realized that, and he took uh, the cowpox, and he then used that to vaccinate, um, that's a live virus, uh, into humans. And the cowpox infected humans, it cross-reacted with a smallpox virus and gave a very mild infection. And that led to the first uh, vaccination attempt. And that was well-received. In fact, it was known, Jenner lived at the late uh, 1700s. It quickly was known, for example, in the United States, and Thomas Jefferson then uh, asked for the cowpox to come over. You send the cowpox over because we didn't have vials or refrigeration then. You sent over an infected cow, and that uh, vaccination was then done in the United States. Interestingly, Jefferson gave the cowpox vaccine to uh, Lewis and Clark, who then, when they traveled through Native American countries, offered cowpox as a remedy against smallpox, which was decimating uh, the Native populations. And so the smallpox vaccine eventually was utilized and then has eliminated smallpox uh, from the world. One of the interesting aspects to ask is why haven't other viruses been eliminated? For example, measles virus, which is a human infection spread human to human, has a superb vaccine, and yet measles has not been eliminated. There are anywhere from five to 50,000 cases worldwide a year, and there were about 40 to 50 cases in the United States. So why hasn't measles virus been inoculated like smallpox? Can we blame anti-vaxxers for that? Or, Well, yes, that is exactly <laughs> correct. But I was going to say measles, the uh, difference between measles and, and, and smallpox is as follows. A relative of measles virus is called rinderpest virus that affects only cattle. And the rinderpest vaccine which is poorer than the measles vaccine, but it's a good vaccine, has eliminated rinderpest from the world. So the two viruses that have been eliminated are smallpox, a human infection, and rinderpest, an infection of cattle. So uh, why was rinderpest successful and measles not? Well, the answer is, as I tell my students, that when you vaccinate a calf, you don't need permission from the cow mother, but you do when you vaccinate against measles. Before we, you talk about uh, measles, the story of the yellow fever and how you talk about what happened in Memphis and how the businesses didn't want to close for yellow fever seems extremely relevant for today when we're talking about COVID. So do you want to quickly go over the Memphis yellow fever epidemic? Yes, I do. But let me, may I take yellow fever from sort of the beginning 
to show the effect that it's had histor historically in what we're talking about. Absolutely. Well, when the Spanish and Portuguese um, navigators came to the New World, they brought smallpox with them. People in the New World never had smallpox, and smallpox was a curse they brought with them. In fact, I should mention, you probably know about the clinical presentation of smallpox because the nursery rhyme, ring around the rosy, pocket full of posy, ashes to ashes, all fall down, is about smallpox. So ring around the rosy is the initial lesion that gives you the red, uh, the red pustule, uh, really macular. Follow, ring around the rosy, pocket full of posy, that's when the macula turns to cover of pus, becomes a pustule. Ashes to ashes all fall down. That's when people die from smallpox. Now, when smallpox came to the New World with the conquistadors, they did not believe that the natives in North America had souls. Therefore, they didn't believe there was a reason to convert them, and they treated them as a beast of burden, having them work in mines, etc. It was only about 40 years after they had come that through a priest, the caucus, that the petition went to the king that said they had souls and you should convert them. But nevertheless, such a large population of uh, North Americans died. So for example, uh, in Mexico, the Aztec went from 20 million to about 2 million because of smallpox. So, but the Spanish were interested in gold and mining, etc. And so they needed another source of, of work indenture. There were no slaves at that time in uh, North America. And the Spanish and the Portuguese brought in slaves from Africa to take the place of the Native Americans who had uh, succumbed to a smallpox. The Africans who came over brought with them yellow fever, which hadn't been present in the uh, New World. And so yellow fever came over, sent by ships carrying the mosquito that passes yellow fever. And it, it came over, and now the uh, colonialists got severely infected with a severe disease called yellow fever, whereas the Africans who have a genetic resistance to yellow fever and were much less susceptible to yellow fever. So now yellow fever is in the North America. And uh, what happens, by the way, first with smallpox, was that uh, when the Native Americans were infected with smallpox, the Spanish went into battle with very few soldiers. True, they had cannons and guns, but their numbers were like, seven, eight hundred versus tens of thousands of Native Americans. However, the, however, the Spanish brought smallpox with them. As I said, that devastated the Native Americans. The Spanish went into battle, always followed by a priest that carried a cross. They prayed to their gods, and their gods were not sufficient to protect them from disease while the Spanish were protected because conquistadors who came over were those that had mostly survived smallpox in Spain and they were immune. So consequently, the formation of Christianity in the New World, especially in 
and South and Central America and in Mexico is a result of yellow fever predominantly. Then in terms of yellow fever, Napoleon I wanted to, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte wanted to have expand French influence into the new world. And uh, France owned Haiti at that time, and they had plantation owners. There was a slave rebellion in Haiti against the French plantation owners, and Napoleon sent his brother-in-law with about 40,000 troops to put down the rebellion. They went to Haiti, and approximately 30,000 out of the 40,000 troops got yellow fever, majority died, and the rest were incapacitated. This destroyed Napoleon's uh, ambition for a, a colonizing the uh, New World. And because of that, he decided to sell parts of, the, of what was to become the United States to America uh, and to Thomas Jefferson. And that, the result was Louisiana Purchase because of yellow fever. That meant that a great part of the expansion of the United States westward was caused as a result of a yellow fever. But also meant that as the United States expanded, they would not run into difficulties against a powerful country like France. Now, here we have a yellow fever, which causes severe disease. Nobody at that time, when it first came, knew it was caused by a mosquito. They thought it was from bad air, and uh, they didn't know how to control it. But they knew that when it broke out, maybe 40% of the population or more di died from it. And for example, when yellow fever broke out in Philadelphia, where the first Continental Congress was, the Congress had to close, the post office had to close, Washington and Jefferson had to retreat to uh, Virginia, Alexander Hamilton left for uh, New York, and so yellow fever closed the United States. Now, in uh, the story of Memphis that you're referring to, took place in the 1860s, 1870s. And what happened there was that yellow fever came up from the Caribbean by boats, went to New Orleans, and from New Orleans went up the Mississippi. And if you read the early reports, the fear of the towns up the Mississippi leading to Memphis uh, were enormous, where whole towns were wiped out by yellow fever. When it got to Memphis at that time, Memphis was the main uh, commercial area of the South after New Orleans. It had taken Atlanta after this destruction of Memphis by yellow fever, then became the hub for the South. So uh, Memphis, with its railroads and with its port, uh, was the main commercial entity. And so when yellow fever was coming along, the businesses, instead of following public health restrictions, wanted to keep open, didn't want to um, endanger welfare. When yellow fever struck, the population of Memphis was a little over 40,000 people. Uh, when it struck, about half, 20,000, left, fled Memphis, only to be uh, restricted or turned back by borders like in Arkansas by armed people so they wouldn't spread a yellow fever, but 20,000 left, leaving 20,000 in the city. 
Of the 20,000 left in the city, about 16 to 17,000 died. And of those that died, the majority were Caucasians who are susceptible to yellow fever and Africans who are more resistant to yellow fever, as I described earlier, when they were taken from Africa, had a much, much lower mortality rate and survived. Just the result, just the reverse of what you're seeing now with COVID-19. But the same issue about closing businesses, about putting in public health measures, occurred in Memphis early in the infection. But as the infection raged, they then followed public health measures, I might say, better than we are in terms of quarantine and things like that. And the outbreak in Memphis led eventually to the formation of the public health service. And this, of course, the public health service, which is having problems today because it is not really uh, controlling the situation. It's being controlled by politicians who control public health. Yeah, that to me is very interesting because I felt like we're going through the same situation over and over again when I was reading the part about Memphis. And it's very interesting how you mentioned Dr. Walter Reed. Then after visiting Memphis, he goes to Cuba and some of the members on his team like start self-experimenting on themselves to find a cure for yellow fever. Yes, the, um, so that it had been known for some time that uh, yellow fever disappeared in the fall. It was not present in the winter. And of course, the reason was that the most mosquito population was killed off and mosquitoes spread yellow fever. They have to bite an infected person and then they then replicate the virus. And then a few days later, four or five days later, they then bite another person. So that when the United States in the Spanish-American War went to Cuba, they had enormous casualties from yellow fever. I mean, viruses cause more casualties than guns in wars. Uh, we'll talk, maybe talk about it later. But for example, in the First World War, 85% of the casualties were due to fluid, due to influenza, not to gas and bullets. Of course, you don't see that in history books. And you don't see in history books about the role smallpox played in devastation of uh, armies uh, in the uh, American Revolution. But let's get back to, uh, to Cuba. So that in Cuba, Walter Reed and, and, and uh, four other members of his commission went down to uh, find out what was the cause of yellow fever. At that time, the main hypothesis was was due to a bacteria. But they wanted to investigate. First of all, they showed it wasn't due to a bacteria. And then following up on the observation of a Cuban physician Carlos Finley, they then studied the transmission from mosquitoes, and they got isolated mosquitoes from uh, Finley. Now, to prove that the mosquito was the culprit, then members of the Walter Reed Commission had mosquitoes bite yellow fever patients and then bite them. And uh, that's how they proved that yellow fever was transmitted by the mosquito and proved the time that it occurred. Of course, they had problems. One of the eminent investigators, and they all were eminent, died from this type of infection. One was definitely sick and then uh, recovered. But what they showed was how yellow fever was uh, transmitted 
Walter Reed was the first virologist, the first person to use human consent forms to do human experimentation. Before that, consent forms were not issued. Now, based on the following uh, that mosquitoes were involved, they knew that if you removed the breeding places where mosquitoes were, which is in in little waters and ponds and, and places like that, you could control yellow fever by, by getting rid of the mosquito. And indeed, that was done. And then following up on that, when uh, Teddy Roosevelt wanted to build the Panama Canal, he was following the French who tried to build the canal and had so many cases of yellow fever that they were unable to do it. And the reason was that uh, the French used a lot of uh, pots for plants and the water in the uh, containers for the water bred the uh, Anopheles mosquito, the female which transmit yellow fever. And so that's what happened to the engineers. They had massive deaths from engineers and they had to give up the Panama Canal. So to get it built, then Gorgas went to the area and they started to drain swamps and started to drain, get rid of a stagnant water. And they were able to control yellow fever. And uh, that's what happened. So, you know, history repeats itself. If you don't put in the funds to control yellow fever mosquito, uh, you might find yellow fever uh, come back to the United States. If you don't vaccinate people against yellow fever, when they go to a yellow fever area, uh, which happened uh, several years ago, then a person gets infected in Brazil who's looking and taking his holiday in the Amazon and uh, did not take a vaccine, went back to, uh, t- went back to Tennessee and carried uh, yellow fever with him. Of course, the physicians didn't realize it was yellow fever because they hadn't seen cases of it. But luckily, there were screens on the hospital window and there weren't any mosquitoes. Otherwise, you could have spread the disease again. So we're very short-sighted about what we do and uh, for public health. Thanks for tuning in. I'm doing my part to stop the spread of yellow fever by spotting mosquitoes this summer. Do your part to stop the spread of misinformed history by going to historically.substack.com. There you can subscribe to our newsletter, listen to our podcast, and help support us with your subscription. That's historically.substack.com. Two things that I really would like to touch upon. In your book, you have a chapter on SARS. So would you mind talking about what SARS is and how it's related to the COVID-19 virus and what we did back then and what we're doing now we're not doing? (laughs) I'd I'd be happy to. Once again, I want to mention that the new edition of Virus Plays in History will be coming out in about two months, and it does discuss COVID and its relationship to SARS. Now, SARS was the first pandemic of our century, 21st century, and how it occurred was from a market in China that liked to uh, eat exotic uh, animals uh, as part of their diet that they liked. What happened was that a woman uh, from Hong Kong got infected. First, let me say that the infection occurred in SARS. It occurred in China. 
And as with COVID-19, the Chinese denied that there was an infection going on. And that was, of course, to protect their businesses, like in yellow fever, but also was to protect the tourist trade. Because if you know there's an infection somewhere, you think twice about going to that place. Nevertheless, this lady in Hong Kong got the infection, and uh, it went from animals to humans. But once it goes from human to human, it becomes very, very severe. And the Hong Kong lady returned to her home in Toronto, where she infected her son. Her son then went to the emergency room in Toronto uh, to be seen, where he infected multitude of people in the emergency room. And pretty soon there was an epidemic in Toronto. Toronto lost incredible amounts of money, lost incredible amounts of people due to the SARS infection. Toronto fought it by quarantining, by having uh, phone calls uh, to health officials about uh, looking for other cases, and eventually the virus died out. So that's what happened with the SARS. Now, SARS, which, which is a severe acute respiratory infection, began in Hong Kong. About several years later, a, a similar infection broke out by a similar coronavirus. These are coronaviruses, which are RNA viruses. They're called coronaviruses. The corona is Latin for crown. And by electron microscopy, the viruses look like they have a crown uh, on the outside of them. So that um, the next one broke out was called MERS, which came from the Mediterranean. It passed from uh, camels and it was the intermediate host to people was a severe disease in the Mediterranean. Then a, a businessman in the Middle East then traveled back to Korea, where he became sick, had respiratory problems, went to small clinics that didn't help him, then went to Seoul, where the major hospitals were, and he then infected many, many people in Seoul. So it spread well, by that way. All these sound very similar to uh, what's going on with COVID-19. Now, the agent that originally causes this, we believe is the bat, but we don't have definitive proof. And the bat then is able to infect other animals. Servet is one animal uh, uh, that is exotic and eaten by Chinese. And that this reagent or this animal when put in a market uh, can infect a susceptible human, and as long as it infects one or so you one human, it's okay. But if that human infects another human, and then it starts spreading, you have problems. We also think that bats played a role in infecting camels for the MERS. So now, recently, we have COVID nineteen. Uh, once again, the suspicion is that it's caused by bats, and we think it's caused by bats for the following reason that um, bats are not killed by uh, COVID-19 or MERS or SARS. So they have a long time history of living with the uh, virus and controlling the virus and being persistently infected by the virus. Antibodies and nucleic acids have been isolated from these viruses. So we know that they carry COVID, but as of yet, 
we haven't really isolated infectious virus from the bats. So that piece of evidence is, is missing of how the bat carries virus. Now, when we did to COVID-19 occurred, it occurs again in China. China denies that it's occurring for a number of reasons and wanting politically to complete, to control the episode, you know the history. So China tried to hush it up and that allowed the virus to spread. China wanted to have its business uh, handled. And so not only tourists, but business people went to China. And then they went back to all over the world to different countries. We now have airplanes where if you incubate a virus, then in as little as a few hours or as many as a half a day, you can be on a different continent and you can then pass the virus on to others. That's what happened with the COVID-19. It was passed by business people in Italy, Italian and English who went on holidays. And from there it was passed into New York. And also it passed into California from people coming from Asia and also people who traveled from New York. So as we live in a more connected world, it's easier for pandemics to occur. When smallpox first occurred, uh, recall that there weren't really great industry in sailing ships and there weren't airplanes. So it was carried by caravans. So it spread slowly to different areas. When I talked about the new world, you had sailing ships so that within a few weeks, you could spread a disease. Now when you have airplanes, you can do that within hours. And so those are precautions that we need to make sure we take for public health. We need to make sure that when a person gets infected, we know who his contacts are so we can prevent those people from getting infected or at least quarantine them. We have to go retrograde and find out who infected him or her. So that, yes, COVID-19 is many examples of like SARS, caused by the same virus, going through a similar receptor, causing severe respiratory infections. SARS disappeared. Not exactly sure why, but it disappeared. We're hoping that COVID-19, we can restrict its spread as as what was done with SARS and MERS, that we'll be able to get on top of this COVID-19. But we've only seen that a few countries have put in place sufficient guidelines to restrict the virus spread, and other countries have not. And our country has had a mixed bag of trying to restrict it. It spread. What would a functioning public health system, like what would be... like, what do we need to do to actually control it in a way that you would meet, like, what, what physicians recommend or your standards, I guess? Well, the most important thing is keeping social or you can call it physical distance. That's very important. That's the most important thing. The second most important thing is that when a case is reported, you have sufficient public health people to see who that person's been close to, so you can uh, survey those people and put them in quarantine if they have to be in quarantine once they get infected, and you go retrograde to find out how they got the infection, so you can look into people like that and uh, and quarantine them. 
That's what's happened in countries that have lowered the spread of the infection. The wearing of masks is, is important for a number of reasons. Most important, I think, is a psychological reason that it reminds you you should keep social distance and reminds you that it's a that it could be a bad disease. The mask also prevents you spreading the virus if you have it, and it prevents other people coughing or spreading the virus to you. But avoiding social or physical distance is the most important thing, and quarantining people who have been exposed. Those are essential items. And that until we get a good antiviral medication, and until we get a vaccine, I think those are the items that you need to control the infections. And although the countries like Iceland and like New Zealand are more homogeneous and smaller, et cetera, et cetera, the restrictions they put in and the fact they had public health people control it and not politicians control public health people also led to their ability to control the infection. It doesn't help when there's a debate whether you should wear masks or not. It doesn't help when there's a debate whether you can mix with people or not. Uh, there has to be a uniform message coming from the top. Now, one other thing, Esha, in uh, my experience in reviewing the history, the sad part is that politics and culture always trump science. So it's difficult. Indeed. And I'm wondering, I believe people became aware of this virus in early January. And suppose we've had scientists working on a vaccine. Like when somebody develops a vaccine, how long does it take for it to be used by the general population? Well, let's go through the procedure developing a vaccine. You have to have a virus. We do have that. You have to be able to manipulate the virus. We do have that. You have to have tissue culture cells you can grow the virus in so you can see about replicating the virus and making enough virus that you can do. You need animal models so that you can test the virus to make sure, I mean, test the vaccine to make sure that it works and that it's safe in animals. There really isn't a good animal model. There have been some that have just recently been reported where they put the receptor of the virus into the animal, and they're starting to uh, look at those, uh, but there are very few of these animals available. So you need to do that. And then you need to make a vaccine. Uh, you need to understand what the immune response is against the virus because you want to mimic the immune response in your vaccine to make it very effective. So you have to know what happens in people that have recovered from COVID-19, uh, what kind of responses have they made? Have they made cytotoxic T lymphocytes, which I would bet would be the most important response? Have they made antibodies and neutralizing antibodies? Many of them had. And you want to make sure your vaccine contains parts of the virus that elicit that kind of immune response. So now with the problem and the world pandemic, you will short circuit some of this information and you'll make the vaccine and you will then test the vaccine, first of all, for safety in volunteers to make sure it's safe. 
and then make sure it elicits the kind of immune response you want. So, and you do this together in one step, whereas before to make a vaccine, you did safety first, then you tested whether it was effective in the immune response, and then you would give the vaccine to people. So the first two aspects are now being more or less combined. But you want a vaccine that's safe, you know? You want to make sure the vaccine works. You want to make sure that the COVID-19 has mutated into a number of species. Remember, it's an RNA virus that mutates easily. You want to make sure that it's, handle, it's, it's working like measles virus, where you have a good vaccine, and it doesn't work like HIV, which is an RNA virus, uh, which because of its multiple mutations, you haven't been able to make a vaccine for it. So you need that information. And then once you have made the vaccine, then you have to have the uh, industrial power to enhance the vaccine and make enough doses to be administered. Then you have to have a progress procedure in which you can inoculate as many people as possible, um, as you did with outbreaks when you tested polio or, or when there were outbreaks of smallpox. You have to do all those types of things so that realistically, if you get the vaccine within a year, when you started, that would be terrific. Now there are different vaccines that are being are going through phase one and phase two. And if they are successful, then probably the decision will be made, I said probably, to uh, rev up those vaccines, ma manufacture them, and start vaccinating the large population. The idea being that all you have to lose will be money. And if governments will pay for that, pharmaceutical companies will do that, and that uh, what you lose is that the vaccine doesn't work. So maybe at the end of this year, we'll know if, if a vaccine is good enough to try, and it has to be revved up and then administered. So where can people find the new version of your book? Well, it's, it's published by Oxford University Press. It should be in the bookstores, should be on Amazon computer, and uh, you could write to uh, Oxford Press. Uh, look up Oxford Press and get the information on the book. When will it be released, the new version? It's supposed to be released in August, and I've just heard that it's being translated into Russian as well. Wonderful. <laughs> so that will be, take a long time. It's already been translated into uh, Spanish. Chinese, Japanese, Polish, and then Hungarian. So, so I look forward to uh, discussing the uh, the book and having people think about uh, what's written on it. Once again, just look up Oxford. I'll uh, put the link in the description below when we get the podcast out. <laughs> okay. Is there anything else you want to talk about, either with the COVID nineteen or or viruses in general, or that? you think it's important for people to know? One thing we should realize is the other impact that viruses have had. When you realize, for example, that certain viruses uh, can impact people who live together closely, uh, who are in poor condition, health conditions because they have poor diets and things like that, then part of the strategy for attacking a virus and part of the public health strategy is to improve living conditions 
improving diet, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, th those are important concepts, uh, including improving sanitation, et cetera. That has occurred also from the study of infectious diseases, but we don't mention that a great deal. And uh, we should realize, or the President of the United States should realize that he is, a, is as susceptible as anyone else to getting COVID-19. And though he may test himself every day, multiple people cannot or have not been tested in this country. And that's been a large disaster that's allowed for the spread of the infection. They're testing more and more people, and that's necessary. And they need to do more social distancing. That's imperative. When they open up schools or open up businesses, they need to do social distancing until we get a handle on the virus and, the, and its spread is controlled. Once you control its spread, then you can open up a lot more things. But what was your last comment you had, Isha? Oh, it seems like uh, maybe popular news stations are not the best place to get accurate information on the virus. Like, where do you suggest people go to get accurate information? That is such a hard question to answer because information is now coming because solid information in the past has come by making a scientific observation and having people repeat it to make sure it's correct. And that takes time. So what happens now is that people make a scientific observation and they tell the press, it hasn't been repeated, it hasn't been verified, and the press repeats it. Not only the press repeats it, but it goes on social information. So for example, I mean, my son doesn't read the newspaper, just reads social information. A lot of that information is incorrect. A lot of it is too premature. It has to be verified. So that is a problem and how to do it. I find myself, and I know personally know Anthony Fauci, Tony Fauci. He is a terrific source of information. He has handled many medical problems from anthrax to influenza to HIV and now to Ebola and now to COVID-19. I have found him to be entirely factual and straightforward. I would say that if we had a weekly conference with Tony Fauci telling you where we are and where we have to be, instead of the way it's being done now, you'd have the information, uh, the public would have the information they need to know instead of having conflicting information. Like I said, your book was so fantastic. I highly recommend everyone read through it because th there's also lots of information about measles, influenza, and the West Nile virus, Ebola. It's very fascinating to see how much role these invisible germs have on all of human history. Right. Zika and HIV and hepatitis, there are other viruses in there as well, as well as the as well as a chapter on uh, autism and uh, what you need to know about autism and what role, if any, infectious agents play and why there's been a movement, an anti-vaccination movement, and how credible or not credible that is. It seems like some of these diseases that were mostly eliminated in the 1800s is coming back in areas like San Francisco and things like that. And that's a lot of it has to do with the anti-vaccination movement, I guess. Yes. And Isha also, 
we don't pay attention to history. For example, when influenza virus struck the United States, San Francisco had about two thirds of doctors died in the United States. In San Francisco, most of the nurses were hospitalized with influenza, and uh, San Francisco had a severe uh, shutdown in terms of masks, in terms of quarantine, etc. Well, that of course led to economic and social disruption. Well, after a while, San Francisco decided to reopen, which they did, and the cases and deaths soared up. So what you're seeing with COVID-19 has been seen with influenza in San Francisco. You also see that in cities in the United States, when influenza came around, cities like Philadelphia didn't practice good quarantine, and consequently their death rate was so high in Philadelphia that they had to bury people in mass graves. Can you imagine that? In contrast, other cities in the United States put quarantine measures in and their incidence in uh, morbidity and mortality, that is infection rates and deaths, were really quite the minimal or modest. So all what we're seeing now has been seen before with other virus infections. And, and that, I think, is also a point being made uh, uh, for the book. The, and we will see more and more of these pandemics with viruses for the following reason. We encroach on the habitat of animals that contain viruses we've never seen before, like Ebola and like HIV, so that we can expect those viruses if they pass from person to person, or like COVID-19. So we expect that. And then we have changes in climate and uh, rains so that we uh, then have more breeding grounds for mosquitoes so we can expect viruses, infections like Zika and yellow fever and dengue uh, to occur. So with all those in mind, it's a never-ending fight against viruses. And the only way to control a virus is to use our human intellect to defeat the virus because the virus evolves and replicates and is a master of what it does. So it takes human intellect to control a virus infection and uh, not to dismiss it because they're dangerous. And it seems like we should also pay attention to our environmental impact. And it seems like it's related to everything we do as in how we deal with poverty, how we deal with the environment, how we deal with our public transportation. So it seems like it, we need to address almost every aspect of society. I think you're, you're absolutely correct and that we're all in this together and we should all be in it together. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you, Isha, and uh, good luck to you and be well and be safe. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.